Welcome to the Bullpen Session. This is Patrick Lois. Glad you're here. Glad you're listening. Hope you're enjoying the beautiful summer weather. And uh, congratulations to all the College Collab partners who are graduating this week and uh, end of the academic year. And feels like I continue to live on that cycle of, uh, you know, feels like a nice break and start to regenerate and think about, well, resting and then thinking about what do we want to do for next season. And uh, it's exciting. It's an exciting time. And also excited to share uh, my conversation with Awoye Timpo, director and someone I've known for a while. And I saw their production of Illyria at the Atlantic. And I saw them there and was just excited to talk and known them for a while. And, and they have a great career, but they're also started a project I think in 2017, called Classics, which is examining the canon of the American theater, especially with what African-American playwrights should we know and what should be part of the canon. And then you'll hear her talk about that. It was really inspiring, just talking about building it more than just a reading series and an awareness and history of production and what was happening then. And and I think it is it was really inspiring for me, and I'm glad I'm excited to share that part of the conversation. You know, I thought, oh, we're going to talk about directing and and building that career, and we obviously covered that as well. But um, just liked how thorough she is with the work she's doing on that. And um, also excited this week, I'm going to say that uh, Furman and Center College are coming in to town, and we're going to meet up with them and a couple of people who work for the farm are going to do a writing workshop and an acting audition workshop and just glad to see them as uh, wrapping up this year's college collab experience. So yeah, now I'm excited to share the conversation with you and with that, play ball. Classics started basically in around 2017. And, um, you know, in, in a way, there's, I almost kind of feel like there's like two origin stories to, to classics, but they're, they're, the, the, they're both connected in the sense that, you know, I've been mostly working on um, new plays for a long time, which has been amazing. And at a certain point, I was like, oh man, it'd be cool to um, work on some classics. And so I started um, thinking about the Black classical canon, I'm classical in, in quotation marks, because um, it's part of the question of classics. Um, and I, at the time, um, was um, assisting or associate um, to um, a couple amazing directors, Ruben Santiago Hudson, George Wolf, who are like not only brilliant directors, obviously, but they're both historians also, you know, they kind of have this encyclopedic um, knowledge of, of plays and history. And interestingly enough, George used to work for this incredible um, historian, archivist named James Hatch. Um, and so like, if you have any kind of black theater anthologies, I've got like the Black Theater USA anthology that was edited by James Hatch, who was just this incredible um, person who was also kind of constantly keeping the stories and finding ways to um, put the stories and put the plays and put the work into places that they could be accessible for people. So he's got numerous books. So George used to work for James Hatch. So at the time I was working, um, you know, at the time I was thinking about, oh, what's what's our Black classical canon? What are our Black plays? Um, I would just ask them and ask 
other actors who were in the plays that we were working on, you know, what are some plays that you remember working on when you were coming up? Or what are some Black plays, plays by Black playwrights who you love that you would like to see again? And so I just started putting together this very long list of plays that people were um, recommending. And then I reached out to Woody King, who runs the New Federal Theater, um, who's kind of like, you know, OG producer. And yeah, they just they just started like I went to Woody's office and he just like gave me stacks of plays, you know, um, and from that started um, a reading series. So I reached out to the Siegel Center um, and because I had done a couple of readings there previously and said, hey, how would, what did you what would you think about doing a reading of some of these black classic plays? Um, and they were like, yeah, so we did four in 2017 as a reading series and then classics. Um, that was like the first classics event. And then the rest kind of grew out from there. And when you were starting and asking, it's amazing, when you were asking people about it, did you did you know you were starting something called classics or were you educating yourself? I was totally just educating myself um, and thinking about, oh, what could be some fun place to be thinking about or to be um, to be looking at. But the thing that I found. So, for example, um, you know, I would talk to some of the actors when we were you know, rehearsing some August Wilson plays with Ruben. And I was like this is actually fascinating. And then when I was working with George, George was like, oh, you should research, um, read these plays by a woman named Kathleen Collins and another playwright named Bill Gunn. And I was like, okay, cool. I mean, if George says, go read a play, like you just go and <laughs> you, try, no. you try to find it and you read it. And so I was like, oh, okay, um, I'm just going to go online. I'm going to order the books. They're going to come to my house. It's going to be nice and easy. I'm going to read them. And as I was looking for those two plays in particular, I was like, wow, these are actually incredibly hard to find. So the Bill Gunn play that I found um, that he had recommended called The Forbidden City, um, it it's, was printed at one point, but it's out of print. So the only copy that I was able to find in New York City outside of the Schomburg was at the New York Public Library on Fifth Avenue, um, where I went, like, you can't check it out of the library. I went, I made, you know, I... Copied it. Um, so suddenly I was also like, okay, this, and then I would start reading. I read both of those plays. I was like, these were extraordinary plays and incredible artists. And I was like, I've never, I've literally never even heard of either of these people before. And I was like, okay, so what's the, what's the thing that has prevented me from knowing two of these exceptional playwrights, right? And so then it became a an education question. Like there's something in the educational system that has actually deprived me of knowing who these writers are. So that suddenly it was like, okay, it's not just then doing readings of the plays or doing productions of the plays. There's actually an educational component to whatever this work is that, cause there's something that has stood in the way of me and many other people knowing about this work. And were, and, were these plays fully produced uh, at the time they were written? Yeah, so actually the play that, um, um, The Forbidden City, the play that George had recommended I read by Bill Gunn, um, was produced at the public in 1989. And it was the last play that Joe Papp ever directed at the public. So that was there. And then um, the Kathleen right. Collins. So, so I'm sorry, because when you said an education thing that stopped, because at first my thought was like, oh, it, it went out of print. It's older than that. That is when, you know, I am older than you, but that's when I'm in college, right? So like that's contemporary work. 
how is it not being, how is it out of print? Forget the bigger yeah. question of like, how is it not being taught? Or how is it not in the schools? Yep. Scene study or whatever, you know, but because not every play is taught. That's, yeah. that's a big, big thing. But, uh, but how's it out of print? Exactly. And so then this, this, it kind of, everything kind of begot another question. So if the play is out of print, how then can it be accessible to students? So then another part of classics became, what do we do to get some of these plays that either are out of print, you can't find them anymore, or were never printed? How do we get them published so that people actually have access to them? So in a way, something that started off as, um, oh, let's do some readings of some of these plays, it it kind of um, opened up all of these other questions. It's like, it's not just about doing a reading of the play. It's not just about doing a production of the play. It's how are we making these plays accessible to students all around the country and all around the world? How are we getting the works actually taught inside of educational institutions so that people are doing them for scene studies, so that people are thinking about them for productions? And then the other component of it is that you know, the thing that's so fascinating, so let's say the Forbidden City, for example, it had its opening night, 1989. On that night, Bill Gunn died. So he was not there for the, for really for the process because he was in the hospital as they were rehearsing the play. And then you're like, okay, looking at the, um, the cast list in the, in the thing, right? Um, you're like, Sam Wayman, one of Bill Gunn's partners, was the composer. Um, you know, there were all these extraordinary actors inside of it. And then suddenly you're like, there's a lot of stories around how a play gets made. That's not just about the play themselves. You know, we just did a production of um, Wedding Band, for example, by Alice Childress. There's so many stories around the development of the play. So then we just became, you know, th then a question comes around like, who are all these people? What was the what was the climate during the time that X, Y, or Z person was writing this play? Who were all the other people who were supporting the creation of this play and this artist? What was their life like? What was the culture like? So then suddenly another, what we call pillar of classics became narrative. Like what are the stories around the plays? So that the play is a the play is definitely a centerpiece, but the artist and the lives of the artists surrounding those artists and the other people and the communities and the cultures and the conditions is all a part of our study of what is quote unquote black classic play. So that suddenly became the four pillars of classics, doing readings, doing productions, educate, oh no, five really. Well, readings and productions we count as one, education, publication, and narrative. How do we tell stories about these plays? I always get to the like the how meaning the resources, but when you decided to, it, are you now? I'm like, are you funded? <laughs> That's really what I want to ask. Are you, did you go out then and say like, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna turn this into an organization, and I'm gonna there's gonna be grants or support for because how are you getting the narrative? That takes time. That takes a lot of research. That's a commitment. It, it totally does. And I think <clears throat> to go back a little bit, so we did the reading, as we did the reading in, in 2017, um, one of the things that we did also, because, you know, you can like go online and say, um, Kathleen Collins, The Brothers, and that play is, is because it was published in an, anth in, in an 
amazing anthology. Um, you can kind of find a description about it. But the other thing that we wanted to do is when we did the readings is to make sure that we could say, oh, we're doing what the wine sellers buy by Ron Milner's, that there's like a blurb or a description so that we could send the blurb, the cast size to theaters to say, hey, this, if this is something that you're interested in doing. So we brought in a team of dramaturgs to each write a blurb, kind of commissioned a blurb about each play so that we could have something for people to hold on to if you want to know what the play's about. I bring that up because one of the dramaturgs that we brought in, um, his name is AJ Muhammad, and he's one of the um, co-producers of the Fire This Time Festival. He's a research librarian at the Schomburg. And basically from 2017, what started 2017, what started to happen is we started to bring in like the core team. So there's five people that make up classics. Myself, AJ, Arminda Thomas, who's a brilliant archivist and dramaturg, Dominique Ryder, incredible director and producer, and Brittany Bradford, who's an incredible producer and um, performer. Um, and they're kind of, everybody kind of came to classics in very different ways, but that's the core team. And so then we as a group came together, identified what the pillars were, what the mission of the collective was gonna be, and then started thinking about, okay, what are the different possibilities? So now most of, we're like in the midst right now of doing, um, of, of fundraising, which we do as a group. Um, and then we've also been um, really fortunate to have some kind of partnerships with educational institutions. So um, we were doing a kind of residency at Princeton that kind of um, um, supported a couple of our, a couple of our projects um, and are in conversation now with a couple other universities also about um, supporting some of the development and research. Um, and then other than that, researching and applying for grants. Yeah, and, and the partnerships come out of you, the team, reaching out and saying, we have this project and we, and and it, and record people, institutions, Princeton, recognize the value of it and, and want to be part of it. And by being part of it, simply meets your mission and, yeah. and, and makes them alive in academia, but also in the world. It's amazing. How far back is the classics going? How are, what are you finding? So our um, timeline, I guess, is um, it's, it's pretty abstract, but because at, at one point we kind of capped um, 1989 as the latest we would go, right? Um, but I, actually, I think it's, it's a very fluid kind of number, but really because our um, work is to study both plays by Black writers and Black performance history. Actually, I think our timeline goes back to like the origins of all theater. And so we're like looking at storytelling traditions. We're looking at griot traditions. We're looking at um, masquerade tra traditions in, in Africa. So all of that we consider part of the black performance tradition. And so we kind of go back to the, as, as early as we can find, you know, we're looking at Egyptian ritual drama, you know? Um, so yeah, it goes, it goes back to the very beginning and it's amazing to kind of look then at the threads of things that, um, you know, began as masquerade and how those kind of have evolved into things that we might see in more contemporary plays. 
Yeah, I am. I I am really. I'm interested because I'm interested mainly because it's interesting, right? So, <laughs> and I'm curious. But I also think where you started with how did they not get taught? Right? Yeah, and obviously, we are aware of a systemic issue of what's been taught, and you know, and and when you just talked about the masquerade and the Egyptian storytelling, and I go right because I, it's easy theater history. I was taught goes like. Greek, Roman, boom, 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 little England, then there's a little yep. Canadian, and then they come over to America and we screw it up. Um, and uh, uh, and there isn't another narrative. You know, there's these secondary, thirdary categories, right? Yeah. But the rich history, like you just said, is like that, that line is also this historical line that's there. And yeah. I thought 1989 being so contemporary when you said, oh, I'm wondering why they weren't taught. It's not It's not what I thought we'd be talking totally about, but I'm fascinated. Is the barrier simply like that play was, that particular play was published. I feel like Alice's play is that we are so lucky to be brought out today because you know that, you know, just by seeing the productions, you're like, oh, well, these plays were great anytime and, yeah. and ahead of their time. Uh, or, or sadly, our times keep repeating what needs to be said. Um, yeah, it's such a dumb question because it's obvious, but I'm going to ask you anyways. What do you? What have you discovered that stopped it from happening? How did that get cut off? I think that there's so many. Um, there's so <laughs> many. A very silly thing. I'm just going to interrupt. Because, sorry, interrupting myself because because very shortly after, I mean. It's not it's not 10 years later that Susan Laurie is recognized. Yeah. Right. I mean, I feel like Top Dog Underdog's like 20 years ago, right? Yeah. You know, that's that's not far off from what you're talking about. From a yeah. history that got not canonized. Yeah, exactly. And you know, I think there's there's so many um factors to it. But I mean, certainly, you know as you say, the kind of um, Western um, framework to all, I mean, most of our education, unless you went to an HBCU, you know, a lot of people, you're not necessarily like, I, you know, I went to a predominantly white college in Ohio, you know, it was like, we were not talking about Alice Childress, nor was it, nor were most people, unless you were lucky enough to have a professor who was like, oh, I'm really into this, and then shared that. And I think a lot of people, People did have that um, that opp opportunity, but it's very selective. It's not like you grow up and it's like, oh, Eugene O'Neill and Tennessee Williams and Alice Childress. That was not that was not a thing, right? Um, and I think that inside of the framework of a kind of white supremacist education system, it inevitably prioritizes um, um, white plays and it pr pr prioritizes plays by white males in particular. Because I mean, the other thing is that I think most of us did read Lorraine Hansberry's A Raisin in the Sun. Most of us did read Fences. But then the thing that happened there is that the white culture and then suddenly the white producing culture is prioritizing these exceptional, extraordinary plays by August Wilson and Lorraine Hansberry, but also trying to make you believe that there was nothing else, that these two people came out of nowhere, wrote these exceptional plays and didn't have any kind of context or collaborators or other people who were writing around the same right. time as them. Magic. Yes, exactly. 
Exactly. Um, and so I think that thankfully um, what we're starting to kind of get a glimpse of now is a kind of cracking open of that and an understanding of that there are other black playwrights besides Lorraine <laughs> Hansberry and, and August Wilson. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, and I think, you know, too, it's like, what are the, I mean, it kind of echoes all this craziness with like all book banning and things like that right now. What are the things that people don't want you to know about the place that we live, the place that we come from? Um, and how are the ways that so many of these black writers were articulating the lives of black people inside of the work that they were doing? And what are the ways that that work is constantly trying to be erased um, in favor of other stories and other narratives so that the country can kind of put forward um, its own supremacist agenda? Um, and how is the educational system actually part of that whole, whole system? You know, it's really interesting. We've been doing a lot of work on the Federal Theater Project. And you know, we've been looking at, as part of the Federal Theater Project, um, Holly Flanagan and an incredible Black producer named Rose McClendon created what they called the Negro units, which were units, which were essentially Black theater companies, specific Black theater companies as part of the Federal Theater Project that were sprinkled in each of the kind of four regions um, of the country. And it's amazing looking at um, those plays. It's amazing looking at what those writers were writing about. And also amazing to see how the agenda of integration, the agenda of working towards equality act could bring down an entire project as well. You know, so what were the things that those writers were saying? What are the things that those um, communities were thinking about? Um, and what were the ways that those works were supporting the community too? And why is it that those stories actually also have not been told? have not been told again and again and again. Yeah, right? exactly. I could talk about the classics forever because I am fascinated by the impact. I feel like the question now that is in, because the farm works with a partners with a lot of colleges, right? And the conversation that's happened since 2020 about the inclusivity and, and, and in the canon. And it's like, well, how do you define that? And especially when people don't know about the place and then they almost have to change it's a bigger, huge thing, but we're having a huge conversation. But the people who are teaching you have been taught, their their expertise has been taught a certain way. They don't have an expertise in what you're talking about. You're, you're generating an expertise and then sharing it. And then people have to learn it and cultivate it into their programming. And their, I want to say teaching. I wanted to say another word, but I'm not sure I'm using it right. So, but they have to bring it in their curriculum. And and, I, and hopefully, eventually, what I'm hoping is that we bring it into the curriculum, not as classics, but to, together. So that once, because I think what happens right in my, in my experience in the late 80s, right, was separate. You know, you learned the theater history and then there's like, oh, and then there's these other things that were, you know, the oh. uh, uh, A theater that was happening and Latino theater that was happening and black theater was happening. And then there was the mainstream, you know, yeah. and hopefully yep. what you're talking about is this, it, you don't want to be taught separate. It should, I don't think it should be taught alongside. These were all happening. Yeah, exactly. Right. And, and you know, what's really interesting too, is that um, 
you know, it's like, we're, we're doing this work now. But as I say, like, we are actually standing on the shoulders of so many people who did this work before. So like, you know, the work that James Hatch had been doing and so many others has been around for, you know, 60, 70 years. Do you know what I mean? So then I think part of our, part of our work is about trying, trying to figure out because we can see history, we can see what happened, how to make sure that the cycle, how to see if how the, what the cycles are, we have to identify what the cycles are and then see, how do we see how to make sure going forward that these things stick? Because what we're doing is actually, it's not new. So many people have done it before us. And so it's like the, you know, the, the academics and the teachers and the professors 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, also had access to all this information, but inside of the system, somebody said, this is what's important to know. And this is what's not important to know. And so we consider the mission of classics to explode the classical, the classical canon. And by that, it also means exploding who says classical by whom, who says canon, who's defining what that, what that is. So it's also an interrogation of these terms, um, which is why classics has an X at the end. You know, it's like it's it's really an, an invitation into a question and into an exploration of a different possibility of our understanding of like what theater is at all, you know, through an investigation of these works and by this and this performance history. Um, and so, you know, I think the way that connects to I, I think it, the way that it connects to the work that, you know, all of us. Um, at classics, because everybody is is working and developing new is really committed also to developing new work. And I think that through the exploration and the investigation of these um, of the black theater history, it actually informs everything about what's happening in contemporary black theater and contemporary theater period, because we can really see what all the the threads are. And we can also see the things that sometimes we think are really new and fresh, but that are actually um, um, echoes of, 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 uh, of, of, of practice um, and of artistic um, generation from art artists who came before us. Yeah, the fact that it echoes is, and that awareness is great because it is true. I mean, when we see, when we see it, we can see you're borrowing from, borrowing from constantly and, uh, did somebody awaken this thirst and passion for you for for this understanding, or was that always present when you started in this this career path? And does that question make sense? <laughs> yeah, it totally does. I love that question. Um, no, you know it's it's interesting. I feel like it's so funny. I think everything in, in a way. Um, <laughs> It's like, you know, sometimes you're like moving through your life and you're like, I really don't understand how these things fit together. And then suddenly you're like, oh, okay, gosh, that all, that all makes sense. So, so like for myself, um, I, you know, when I was like in probably college studying theater, I was really into like, um, cause I was also really into languages. Um, so um, I was really into like French 20th century French drama, like Ionesco, Beckett, um, you know, um, and so I was always excited already by 
these kind of classical works, not even that old necessarily, you know, um, but kind of contemporary classics. Um, and so I think that even as I really moved into doing more new plays. I think that kind of energy, as you're saying, as directors to say, okay, here's this piece of text and what does it mean for us to like interpret it in some kind of um, new way? So I think that energy and spirit was actually already, um, it was already there. So it was really a, ret a return to that. And as I say, I feel so grateful to have um, spent so much time with um, people like Ruben and George, who are also like just as people, like two of like the greatest storytellers of all time. <laughs> yes. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, how did you how did you connect with them? How did you get to work with whoever came first? Because I like to know, like, how did that begin? You got in a room. That's an exciting room. Yeah. So and I always I always tell people I'm such a, a proponent of like if there are artists that you're excited to work with, like just writing them a message. So I literally wrote at the time, um, I wrote Ruben and gosh, I actually think that it might've been like a letter. I don't even think I sent it by email. I think it was an actual letter printed out on real paper. Um, <laughs> and I had seen, um, I had seen a bunch of stuff that he had done and a friend of mine had been stage managing for him. And I was like, this, this person is just so fascinating to me. I, just, I loved listening to him talk. I loved the work that he was doing. And I loved his, he was just so committed to Black people. He was so committed to Black storytelling. And I was like, I, 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 was, I, I really just wrote him a letter to say, if there's ever anything that you need, you know, I'm, I am just so in awe of the work that you do. And if I can support you in any way, please let me know. Um, and then about a year later, um, he was looking for an assistant director for a play he was directing. He was doing My Children, My Africa by Alpha Fugard at the Signature. Um, and he was looking for an assistant director and he um, and he reached out. Um, and so that's that's how that relationship really started. And I've worked with him on probably five or six different plays as an assistant or an associate. And he reached out from the letter from a year ago? Yeah. That's yeah. Right. Yeah. So it was like, and I was like, okay, I maybe, maybe I was like, I've just, I put it out in the universe. It's like, I'm I energetically put that support out um, for what he is, what he's been um, creating. And it was like, okay, I, you kind of leave it to just do its thing or not, you know? Um, and so I was super grateful that he reached out. Uh, I'm grateful. I'm glad too. And it's funny, I've put those, the letter in the mail. Yes. So, a while ago, but yes, and I remember, and you do, and you, because the thing about this career that I think is very important to remember is that, yeah. that it's a long time. Yes, absolutely. You know, and just because something didn't happen today doesn't mean people forget you, you know, in a year, in, in longer, you, you know, because we're all busy and working in our own ways, but eventually comes back so I'm Absolutely. it's nice that that letter was saved um, yes talk about that forever I'm, I'm going to talk about Illyria for a little bit how did that play come to you I mean there's so much in between like yeah it was at the signature and then I, I came to this play but the play was great I I, I was happy 
I was happy for a lot about that production and that and that play, but I'm curious, just how did it come to you? How did that relationship start with the with the writer or the play? Yeah. So speaking of things that start a certain way and then evolve over many many years, um, <laughs> so I had met and I can't even remember how, um, but I met um, the actor Sanjit De Silva, who played Shiv in the production um maybe i mean at least a decade ago maybe you know 11 or 12 years ago and you know we just had a, a friendship and he um brought his wife deepa to see a production that i had done up at the national black theater we were doing nicole salter's play carnival um at mbt um and deepa and sanjit came to see the production and so that's actually how i met deepa was many 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 years ago um and we all just became friends deepa and sanjit are, are married and have an incredible are you know have had an incredible artistic collaboration they used to run a theater company called rising circle together and um, so really Deepa and I just started off as friends and then she was working on a number of different plays. And so we did a number of workshops and readings. Of, we've done numerous workshops and readings of hers over the years. Um, so she's someone who I've known for a long time and I really consider them to be like some of my closest friends at this point. Um, and so um, we had done... Um, Deepa had written a play. Um, when did we do that? Gosh, it must have been in like 2018. We did a workshop through Rising Circle. Um, and then she applied to grad school. She went to Brooklyn College um, and was there kind of in the overlapping years of the pandemic. Um, and But she's someone who I always, you know, we just like talking about theater and life and art and art making together and kind of the things that we're dreaming about and the things that we're thinking about and the things that um, we have questions about. And so I feel like we our, our relationship actually comes out of many years of just conversations just about life. And so she had written this play, um, Illyria, maybe, I think she started writing it maybe uh, five years or so ago. And she'd actually been collaborating with another director. Um, there's someone who had brought the idea to her of, um, adapting um, this ancient Sanskrit drama. And so um, called The Little Clay Cart. Um, and so she started on a journey of um, looking at The Little Clay Cart and also looking at the intersections of that story and her own family story, which started in India, moved to East Africa, and then ended up in the small town in Illyria. So in just the course of me knowing her, I had kind of read, you know, I kind of keep up with what she's writing. Um, and then the Atlantic reached out, had reached out and was like, hey, we're, you know, putting together um, next season and uh, we would love to um, read some more plays. So I sent them a bunch of plays to read. Um, and one of them was Illyria and they kind of just fell, fell in love with it and then ended up deciding that they wanted to produce it, which is amazing. <laughs> yes, it is amazing. Because yeah. that is never easy. Exactly. Um, you know, it's funny when you said, oh, we've done readings and workshops. And I'm like, yeah, as you do. Yeah. And hoping that that the production happens. And I will ask about that. They reached out to you to say, do you have anything you're interested in? Right. And that's what the Atlantic reached out to the, you. Yeah. And you know what's so funny? I, I, I wasn't even sending them plays like, oh, these are all plays that I 
need or want to direct. I was just saying these are some amazing playwrights whose plays I really hope can get um, a production. And so I was really just sending the plays in the spirit of, um, you know, elevating these incredible writers and these incredible um, and these incredible plays. So it, it's actually it's actually hilarious because the intention wasn't like, oh, I'm, I want let's I want to direct all of these plays. Not at all. You know, uh, right. but I'm, I'm, I did this one. Give yeah, me, exactly. Yeah, exactly. No, it, it's always better. It's always better to promote good plays. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's amazing. And, and also amazing that you get to, that you're part of it. Um, how much development went into that um, from the moment of you sending it to them? When you said then they chose to, they fell in love and they produced it. But yeah, what's that journey like? So Deepita had a pretty significant, like a couple of weeks workshop um, previously. And then once we, it was, I mean, actually, truth be told, it was pretty, it was pretty fast because I think that they programmed it, I want to say in maybe July. And then we did, to, and then Deepa and I just started jumping in and um, working on the, the script for, you know, most of the fall time. We did a short one week workshop in the fall, maybe in like October. Um, and then just continued writing. We had two dramaturgs um, on the on the play, Amrita um, Ramanan, who works at the pub public, who's the new works director at the public, and Snehal Desai, um, who used to be at East West Player and is now going to run uh, CTG out in LA. So we had these incredible minds kind of working with us on the play. So we had them throughout the process. So we had many conversations with them. Um, and then we jumped into rehearsal in January. So it was a it was a pretty, pretty you know, pretty quick process. Yeah. All right. How the how the East West Coast dramaturgy work? Was that just email and Zoom and phone and stuff, or were they in the room? It was all it was all of those things. And then um um, Snehal came in from LA a couple of times to be in the room with us. And then um, Amrita was here, um, so was able to be in rehearsal with us. And then many Zoom calls and conversations. So like, especially after, you know, certainly like the first read through and after, if we would do after runs and things like that. And sometimes, um, you know, we were able to say, okay, we have a specific question that we want to think about. And then we kind of get all the minds together um, and talk things through. Great. Yeah. And, uh, I'm not, you know, I saw what I saw was uh, what I liked about it was the generation was an honest, very complex family narrative. You're not going to, you know, obviously, I didn't know what the original source material was. I appreciated that it felt like a family drama that was not about trauma of the trauma of being an immigrant, trauma of being the other. It was like, no, this is drama. Of being a family and having a secret and you know and and that is rich because it's culturally specific but but what made it culturally specific it was personal specific uh, and how i don't know if this is about the podcast or not but how did the source material feed into that or did that just give a way into starting to tell the story so yeah so the the source material um i mean oh my gosh that play is so fascinating um but it um and but the, the the that play actually focuses on the um male 
character. So the character who kind of eventually became Charu in in our production, um, who's the husband who doesn't know that his he has a son, um, is kind of the, the main character of that story. So Deepa really intentionally wanted to um, prioritize um, the the female the female characters, um, and so she kind of evolved that. And then, as I say, she based it off also off of her own life. But the ish, the 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 things that I think really um, she held on to was just notions of class um, and um, kind of um, legacy. Um, this kind of these stories about different um, generation generations, um, wealth, you know. Um, so all of those things are they're kind of embedded, even though the story itself um, is really quite different. Um, it, there's 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 a lot of different kind of just seeds from the original text that are really exciting, including some of the character names. Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah. I appreciate that it came in, but I was like listening the whole time or watching it going, this feels, I didn't think I was hoping her family story is not as complicated, <laughs> uh, but it, you know, it felt authentic and I, yeah. uh, or, you know what I mean? But, and I didn't, you didn't feel a, a, a laying on of yeah. historical sense, but I, I could feel the class structures in there and that's great. I'm really struck and love the work with classics that is happening because I am struck by how do we define the canon mm. change, not how do we define it, but how do we inform it moving forward and change it. And it's like, it feels like when you say that play comes from, you know, this classic Sanskrit and it's informed by that. Well, then there's a whole other form of classics, right? There's another culture that's been informed and there has and there's work that has gone quiet and you know, how do we make sure that all of that gets cultivated, you know, so that we're making sure that we're telling, so that it doesn't just become, you know, so that we don't lose other stories, you know, and I think that's our job, is to yeah. pay attention to that history that's there, and I really, I loved hearing that that's part of that play too, because it tells us, like, same thing we were saying before, is we borrow history constantly, we're constantly and that's what the theater is. You know, we're not, nobody's, I don't want to say some people are reimagining the form, but we're not uh, recreating the wheel. Yeah. You know, we're borrowing, and we're borrowing all the way from our ancestors always. I don't have a question attached to that. I just want to be, have an awareness that that's what has to happen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think that, you know, the, and it, it, it's a little bit thinking inside and outside of like the structures of the, what I like to call the quote unquote American theater, meaning, you know, I think that there's so many um, incredible artists who have so many incredible art artistic impulses and are pulling from many um, creative, different creative ancestors. And I think part of the work is how to <clears throat> support that cultivation um, from all of those artists. And, um, you know, I think our, the, the spirit of the um, theater system um, is likes to think that there's only like narrow opportunities and like only one person can squeeze through here or another person can squeeze through here. And really, I think it's just kind of cracking open um, what's possible and supporting the artists, you know, who, 
um, who are inspired by so many different kinds of materials. And then, you know, for our part at Classics, just to make sure that, um, you know, that whatever people need in their own artistic investigation, that we can support um, their um, research and, and, and curiosity, you know, um, and say, yeah, if there's, if there's a, like, how, how do we make that material just accessible and say, hey, you know, also like the Schomburg is an incredible library and resource and there's so much in there. Um, but yeah, it's just how to how to just support as many artists as possible, because everybody's thinking about things in a different way, you know, um, which is really exciting. It is exciting. And it's a great. So, so what's great is it makes, you know, when people are able to tap into like what they're really such simplistic thing I'm about to say, I'm OK with it what they're really able to tap into what they care about and is vitally important to them and makes that story come out, it makes it richer for us because the stories are richer because we get to see different passion, different things that are, you know, and not trying to mold to what has to fit into that narrow pathway. Yeah. And I think there is, it's not unlimited resources, but I think there are unlimited ways of getting the art into the world. Yeah. And uh, and I think what's great is, yes, there's there's a system that exists, there's a established institutions and things, but I think like figuring out how to either break in, get into those institutions with different work or figure out different ways of presenting the work so that we can get what we care about out there, you know, and that's absolutely that's the most important at the most you know, always, I was going to say at the moment, but I think always. Always. Yeah. And that's, I think that's the fun thing for, about looking at history is you look at all the ways people have always done that over time. You know, it's like, if you go back and look at just before the dawn of the regional theater system, how were people making work? Where were they making work? How were they thinking about what a play was? Right. So it's like in our not too recent history, there's many examples and so many precedents um, that we have the ability to see and then also to build from those, you know? So that's that's what I think is really exciting for us. You know, there's a West African expression called Sankofa, which means to go back and get it, you know? It's like you go back to the past to build for the future, you know, and a kind of, um, that's like um, longitudinal, but it's really like everything is a circle and just feeding, you know, off of each other. So it's, it's amazing to be able to, to look back and say, oh my gosh, I see that thing that they were trying to do or where they were trying to do their work or how they were trying to do their work. It's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. I like to ask, and it sounds like working with Ruben is, I like to say like, what got you to the next level and what helped you? And it sounds like the letter did that, but just so that I ask the questions I ask. What do you think today, before that start, that relationship started, what do you think you carry into the room today that maybe you didn't when you were starting? Mm. Yeah, I would, I would, I would definitely say um, that, um, yes, absolutely. I mean, my, my time with Ruben was and continues to be amazing. Um, and my time with George was, you know, those, those are the, my two real, and, and, and a woman also named Joanna Settle, who's a brilliant director, um, who, you know, um, you know, um, were certainly the people that I really came up with and under. Um, and 
I think being, they're all so different, like completely different people, but, um, you know, wa watching them work, being around them as they work was, was incredibly meaningful. But I think the thing too, is that, you know, I think over time, and I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this too, you know, it's almost like, I feel like you kind of, uh, and not to bring in like too much like war metaphors, but it's kind of like you're you're building your army, right? It's like you get you get your people around you, um, your collaborators, your friends, the people that you trust, the people who can advocate for you. Um, you know, especially I think as a as a young director, no one wants to give you an opportunity to do anything. <laughs> you, um, and so for me, I think all all of those people support. Supported, you know, I I felt like I always felt like I had them in my corner. Um, them and many others, you know, and Guzzi as a playwright, David um, as a producer, um, you know, people who were willing to go to bat for me. And I feel like that's the thing, right? It's like you know, like no one's doing this on their own, you know. I had so many people around me who, when the time came to say. Um, hey, um, what do you think about giving, a, this is the person that I want on this project. Uh, a lot of people had to come together to make that actually happen. It wasn't just me, right? Um, and I think that, um, yeah, that's the, thing, that's the thing I really appreciate, like having your people around you and the people who can advocate for you and support you because you know, as directors, we're always calling people on the phone being like, yo, I'm going through this thing right now. What do you think? Like, even though we don't always get to see each other as directors, I think that we're always um, invisibly supporting each other and we know that we can reach out to each other when we need each other. But I think the one of the main things, which is so basic in a way um, that I definitely take a lot of care on now that I didn't really think about before is um, that the room that we create is, is a uh, no, it's like an asshole free zone. Like anyone can be like the most talented person in the room. If there's a lot of um, just energy or negative vibes, like we can't, we can't have it in the room. And that's a thing that I really, I really hold on to that. I didn't think to um, uh, what's the word for persist on early on, but now it's just like, that's just, that's just ground level. You know, it's like, we just need, we need good people in the room, great artists, but just good people. And that feels like the most important thing. Oh, I love that. And it's true. You bring your team because you, yeah, you, it's one thing to bring the team of people together. Like, you know, your designers and the things that people you like to work with and actors and artists, and you're right about the no, asshole because that you're over time that becomes clearer and clearer that that's not worth it it's yeah. it, it stops creativity and it stops all of it but the people who advocate for you in that team is also critical and you have to know you you know if there's something about knowing you have that because somebody has your back because it doesn't happen on its own never yeah. does yeah, exactly. And I don't think it I don't think it ever does. Even though like over time you still need mm -hmm. still need that. A hundred percent. Um have any advice you would share to people starting out or very funny, sometimes I say, would you ask what would you tell yourself when you were starting? Um but just anybody building the career, that was good. Have your team and your back, but yeah. I think, you know, the thing I always think about is the the kind of um, ecosystem 
right now is very, I, th I think we've developed an incredible system to be able to support, um, and, and it, it has its its flaws, but there's, there's a system in place to support the development of playwrights and new plays. There's not so much of a system to support directors. And so I think, you know, a thing I think about a lot is how do we as directors remain in constant conversation with our own craft and artistic life as directors and not just as um, um, facilitators and developers of all these incredible new plays and all these incredible writers who are um, who are who are making work. And I one thing that I um, like to think is that how can directors make space for their own curiosities, right? Um, and whatever that means, like, is it getting some people in your apartment once a month and saying, I'm really excited about X, Y, or Z play and getting a bunch of people together to read it over dinner or something, you know? Like how, how can we always be in constant conversation with um, our own artistic impulses, even if we can't always see where the where it's gonna land. Do you know what I mean? Um, because you know it might not be something that you're like, oh, I could see it at this theater or this theater or this theater, or that that theater would be able to support whatever the process is. But how can we just remain keep in touch with our own artistic impulse? that is inevitably gonna show up as we're you know, in the process of collaborating and creating these new plays. Um, and, but that, I think that's the main thing. How, how do you make space in your own life, in your own practice, in your own craft to develop the things that are really exciting and interesting to you, even if you can't quite see where it's gonna land? Do you know what I mean by that? I do, and I think it's great. And I think what you said struck I've been thinking, been thinking about that a lot, actually, because you spend so much time, right, developing plays. And so you spend a lot of time around tables or in conversation about the script and about the story. And that's different than the actual directorial muscle of, that. it's part of the muscle. Yeah. And there's other things of just the experimentation of space that you yeah. want to get into. And you're like, how do I, how do I find the time to do that? Exactly. And I'm like, I feel like, you know, especially people who still have access potentially to um, their universities um, that maybe have space over the summer, you know, um, if there's opportunities to get people in a room and where you can have some free space, especially, um, or say, you know what, I'm going to work in this temp job and I'm going to invest $100 a month to rent some space at some studio somewhere. Um, that's like my my own investigation, you know. Um, I think that's. I think it's a thing for us to, you know, oh, constantly hold to. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Oye. Thank you for the conversation. And um, you know, it was, uh, it was really interesting the thing she said at the end about giving your directorial self if you know for the directors out there giving yourself space literal physical space to do some work you know if you have a relationship with a university if you have a relationship with an institution you've worked with or you know getting in a rehearsal room a couple hours a month 
Um, I think that's important because I was, was just thinking about it. I think I said it to her. I was just thinking about that, that we spend so much time focusing on play development. Directors do, you know, working in new works a lot and developing the script and, and asking those questions that it's important to play in space and 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 bring ideas to text and create opportunities for yourself. So I really, really uh, appreciated that and have been thinking it myself. So it was good to hear that. And also all the work she's doing, but the classics, you should check out the website and it's uh, classics with an X at the end and all the context she's putting around that material or the organization's putting around the material and really is inspiring because it's important to know our history. But I also think if it's a thing we had talked about, about the inclusion of the educational aspect of it and, and that it not get lost because I think these things peak in interest and then find ways not to be shared. And I'm like, how do we make it permanent and permanent part of our history and understanding of what was happening when and why it was being created and how it was being shared. And um, it's really great. So again, congratulations. Glad to share the conversation. Congratulations to the College Collab partners and everybody who's graduating. And uh, thanks for listening. And with that, we're out. Thank you.